Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. In the evening, Murtaza and I meet on the couch for the married person's evening ritual, TV. Along with a nightly bowl of microwave popcorn, we've been putting away two episodes of The Mindy Project after Z is in bed. We guffaw and cringe in the same places. We're diasporic South Asian children of immigrants communing over the embarrassing life of a diasporic South Asian child of immigrants. This is G.P. Gottlieb, and today I'm talking to psychotherapist Farzana Doctor, author of Seven, a gripping novel that swirls around issues of family, inheritance, the balance between tradition and superstition. Sharifa and her husband, Murza, take their seven-year-old daughter, Zinat, to Mumbai for Murza's sabbatical year. He is a kind and considerate husband who tries to understand and help Sharifa with her issues regarding intimacy. Sharifa has made mistakes in her marriage and sometimes wonders why she's lived without sexual passion or tension all these years. When Murtaza is so wonderful and he smells so good. Now they're in India, far from the hassle of their regular New York City life, and Sharifa is swept into her family history, her cousin's disagreements and unrest in her conservative Bora religious community regarding the time-honored but horrific practice of khatna, a.k.a. female genital mutilation. Hi, Frazana. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Khalid. Thanks for having me. So how did you come to tell this really intriguing story? Well, I was um, in the middle of some activism around some of the issues I guess we're going to talk about. Um, I was also um, doing some promotion for my third novel at the time, so I didn't have a lot of time to write. But what I found happening was I was sitting down with my morning cup of coffee, and these fully formed fictional scenes were just kind of coming out of me. And, you know, most novelists know that, like, you have a choice about what you're going to do with that. But by the time I had about 20 of those scenes, I really realized that this was a novel. And that, so that was the beginnings for me. Wow. So Sharifa, your protagonist, and her husband, Murtaza, they both grew up in the United States. Can you explain why she feels both apart and separate from American culture? Yes, I think this is a really common experience for people who immigrate, um, who are part of a diaspora um, in the West, that you simultaneously feel part of, you know, your your new home culture as well as the culture of your ancestors. But you can also feel like you belong nowhere because you don't quite exactly fit in either place. So I think that's why she struggles a bit around her identity. She's a flawed protagonist. Why is she so plagued with guilt? And can you talk a little bit about her? Yes. So, um, you know, she's this 40-year-old woman. Uh, they, you know, she and her husband and um, daughter go to India. 
um, for his sabbatical, for Mortiza's sabbatical. And they've had some issues in their marriage in the past. Um, one of the pieces of backstory um, is that uh, she had an online emotional affair and the couple haven't quite 100% recovered from that. And so she still feels the guilt of hurting her husband. Yeah. She says that she wore a shalva kameez to social functions on the weekend and jeans to school when she was growing up. And now they're getting ready to go to India and she tells him to pack a kurta because they'll be there for Ashura. So can you unpack all of that? What is Ashura? Uh, What are the clothing? What about the clothing? And what does the clothing signify? Yeah, so that's a scene in which um, I think that whole diasporic identity, um, I try to um, show it. So, you know, there she is somebody who has been part of both worlds. They're going to India and they're packing their luggage. And she asks her husband to pack a kurta because um, Ashura will be happening when they're there. And Ashura is a holy day observed on the 10th of Moram. It's a very solemn day uh, for Shia Muslims. And um, they belong to uh, the Dawoodi Bora community, which is a subsect of Shia Muslims. And um, part of what's going on in that scene is that uh, they have different experiences of their religion. Sharifa is somebody who is sort of in the middle. She likes a certain amount of uh, tradition and her culture, while her husband um, has pretty much renounced most of it. So that, that whole scene is about her gently cajoling him to bring the right religious clothing. Oh, it's religious clothing. That's oh, right. Okay. Because she says it's a wedding that they're going to. And I thought it was sort of like, bring your tux. No. Okay. Right. No, the wedding is a separate thing. That's another oh. thing she's probably cajoling him to bring the right clothing mm-hmm. for. He's a wonderful husband, it seems. Wonderful guy. Yes. Sensitive. You know, so I wrote Mortiza in a very intentional kind of way. He is a counterpart to Sharifa. Sharifa is about a bit tightly wound. She's a bit avoidant, closed up. And I needed her spouse to be somebody who would push her. And so he's a guy who um, can be insecure, can be um, quite attending to her in good ways, um, but also pokes at her. And so he represents kind of like this modern sensitive husband and dad. And um, I, I also kind of wrote him in this way because later on in the book, um, I wanted to touch on what sexual healing looks like and mm. what can male partners do if they want to be good allies in that process. So I, I like to show possibilities. Yeah. Well, why is Sharifa so surprised to have married someone from the same sect? They, I love the scene where they decide to have a civil ceremony and Murtaza says to his parents, I thought you'd be happy that I married a nice Bora girl. So yeah. my question is, would, would they have been happy with any Muslim girl or did it need to be a girl from the same sect? Well, in our community, I think like a lot of small communities, the uh, more traditional parents of would be much happier um, if their children marry within the same community. So this is an insular, fairly small community. And so, you know, for, for someone like Sharifa, who's growing up in the West, 
is fairly liberal. She didn't really think that she was going to marry someone from in the community. I think there's a, a part where I've written that, um, you know, she and her friends had experienced a nice guy when they first met, but then they turned into these traditional husbands that wanted, you know, food on the table by a certain hour and the children to be quiet and so on. So she, you know, she bought into those stereotypes as well. And um, so she wouldn't have imagined marrying within the community and probably Mortiza as well. But then they end up getting um, matched up and they have a lot in common and they connect. Yeah, they seem really good together. Can you say more about the community? I thought it was a worldwide community. Are they all, is it all based from in India though? Was it, was its genesis in India? Um, yes, basically it's, it's based in India. Um, originally probably from Yemen is the history. Um, and um, the community was probably born in Gujarat, India. And right now, uh, based in Mumbai, uh, but the the numbers are somewhere around 1.5 million globally, and there are um, large communities in the U.S. and Canada and the U.K. and Australia and so on. Um, so it's a diasporic community. There's there's a lot of kind of I describe it as an insular community because there are some practices maybe that are different from other Muslim communities, and there are some practices that are even secretive. So um, sometimes uh, people all across the world have never heard of Dawoodi Boras, um, even though we're everywhere. Ah. Uh, what are they, what are you, they, the community known for? How would we know? So people might know us for being fairly well educated. Um, uh, we have, um, some characteristic kind of attire for the more orthodox folks. So uh, the women's attire, they're often described as butterflies. They, they wear something that's called a rida, which is a head to toe outfit, often sequined and embroidered and quite beautiful. It's like a burqa, but really colorful and beautiful. Um, the, the men might wear kurtas and topis, but those are the that's the religious attire. So what we would wear to a mosque, or if you're more orthodox, you might wear it full time. Um, we're also known for having an apex leader named the Sayedna, and the Sayedna is somebody we don't uh, we're not supposed to be questioning. So he holds a lot of power over the community. And some people who know something about the community might know that in the last, say, 40 years, um, the religious leadership has gotten quite controlling and quite regressive of the community. And Sharifa's cousin thinks that it's a cult. Can you address that? Yeah. So um, in the story, she has these two cousins that she's very close to, but who are opposites. And uh, Fatima, the cousin who is the activist in the family, um, jokingly describes the community as a cult, half-jokingly describes it as a cult, um, because of how controlling the religious leadership is. And this cousin Fatima is an activist around Katna, and Katna is um, a form of female genital cutting that is a social norm within the community. Mm-hmm. And she is trying to get the practice of that practice banned. Uh, was it that is she trying to get it banned in all of India? 
or specifically in the in the Bora community? Um, in India, so you know when Sharifa and her and her husband and daughter arrive in India, the controversies and the arguments about this issue are in full swing in the community. Um, just as an aside, in, in real life, in 2015, the movement really got going. Um, the anti-Kutna movement really got going in India because it was the first time that the issue entered public discourse in India. So activists started writing articles about it, being interviewed by the media, and so on. So cousin Fatima, Fatima, Fatima? Mm-hmm. she's involved in the whole movement, and it causes some bickering between the cousins, between Fatima and Zainab. And Zainab and Sharifa. And Sharifa, what's her take on the issue? She's sort of in between. She wants, she wants to uh, listen to both cousins. That's right. So, you know, the dynamic amongst the three of them has always been that she's sort of the moderate or the the mediator between the two of them since they were young. So when she comes to India and the community is in the midst of these debates, she's, she's actually a bit clueless about it all. And I purposefully wrote her in that way because I wanted her to be collecting her research and her information in digestible chunks so that the reader could also take in the information in digestible chunks. And so she's she's sitting there with all of her information. She has this cousin Zanab who says this is a normal thing, a harmless practice. And then she has her cousin Fatima who says it's child abuse. And she she kind of agrees with Fatima, but she doesn't want to alienate Zainab either. So she really has to, in a very messy and clumsy way, find her own um, position in all of it. And that's that's a big part of the story and part of the spoilers as well. <laughs> At some point, she finds, uh, she sees, she reads this about women who are on the internet recalling being taken to get the Katna done. Mm-hmm. And can you talk about her reactions to that? Does she believe that it really do- does happen? She does believe that it happens, um, but there's always this doubt in her head like, oh, maybe it only happens to the rural women, or maybe it only happens to the uneducated women. Can't happen in our family. So eventually she has to confront the truth that it does happen in her, her own family. And then she's, you know, kind of aghast and she doesn't know what to think about it. And she hears that it's um, a favorite aunt who was part of it. And she has to figure out how she feels about that. So when when Sharifa's not homeschooling her daughter, um, hanging out with her husband, just running the household, bickering with her cousins, <laughs> visiting cousins, she's actually researching uh, the family history. And she is interested specifically in the character of her great great grandfather what draws her into studying him from among everybody in the family so um you know when she was thinking about joining her husband in india she wasn't sure what she was going to do with all of her extra time and so her mother um says why don't you do some oral history um she's she's a history buff sharifa is and so she ends up following the trail of her great-great-grandfather, who um, is a well-known um, ancestor who 
um, was quite wealthy and a benefactor in the community, a business leader and philanthropist. So um, she decides to follow um, his trail because there might be some records. And she gets very curious more about his personal life, um, his relationship with his wives, um, why he divorced his third wife and so on, how he would have felt about two of his wives dying. She gets more interested in that kind of personal drama than um, in all of the details she's collecting about his you know, wealth and land ownership and all of that kind of thing. So I understand this is, he is based on your own great, great grandfather. And so did you do this kind of research? Was there any similarities in the story? Can you talk a little bit more? Yes. Yes. The year before I began writing this book, um, my father suggested that I do some research about my great, great grandfather. And um, so I didn't get very far. I'm, you know, not a historical researcher, I did my best for the book, but um, when it came to researching my great-great-grandfather, I just got a lot of stories from family members, and it was a lot of that trope of, you know, someone who went from very poor, the whole rags to riches story that I learned. So what, what I thought I would do, because I did collect some very interesting bits in all of it, I thought it would be very fun to... Um, throw it into fiction. And I wanted to make sure to fictionalize because, you know, if you're going to be writing about a real person, you want to be very careful about sort of preserving their memory. But if I create a fictional character that's inspired by some of the fun things I learned about my own great-great-grandfather, it's a different story. So, for example, there's a scene in the book um, where her great-great-grandfather is protesting a school that is refusing to take um, his own grandchild because they are only taking white British boys. That was a really fun story that I heard from my own um, family members who told me about my great-great-grandfather. So I, I did throw in some of those details, but every, you know, a lot of it is fictionalized because I didn't know anything about my own great-great-grandfather's wives or his relationships with them or his relationships with his children. So I had to make that up. And it's a lot of fun to make things up. (laughs) Yes, it is. That's why we're fiction writers. Abdulali, the the great-great-grandfather, hands over a business at some point to the ruling clergy and somehow that makes them incredibly wealthy and in your book the cousins are talking about how the clergy have way too much money and power and they're blaming their own great-great-grandfather for making that happen. Yes there was a time I think when the religious clergy um, were not um, a business when they would have fulfilled their religious roles with a little bit more purity. Um, But there was a time in history when it seemed that they started to receive a lot of donations from wealthy people. And um, so I've written um, in this book that um, Sharifa's great-great-grandfather was one of those people who emboldened um, and helped to make the religious leadership more wealthy. So I think that this is a common story, right? Across probably many organized religious groups, 
that sometimes a form of business diplomacy is to make donations, right? Political donations, religious donations, whoever, whoever matters at the time. And so that's what that is about. And, um, you know, it's very easy for these characters a hundred years later to place blame and to wonder about their own relatives um, mm-hmm. involvement. When I'm not even saying if, because it will probably happen that all 1.5 million people in your community are going to read this book. (laughs) (laughs) What will their take on it? Will they be pleased with how you have depicted them Mm -hmm. or will they be upset with you? Well, you know, um, you can't make everybody happy. So I do expect that some people will um, not enjoy aspects of the book. But um, it's still early days, and I have had some feedback from people who have been really happy with the book and really glad that I have uh, raised the issues in the book. Uh, Those are people from my own community. So I do have some hope that um, this will meet the community's needs um, in some ways, you know, like all religious communities, there are there's the spectrum, right? There are the people mm-hmm. who are, you know, hardly there. They're just sort of culturally bora, um, and then you know, not really practicing. And then there are people kind of in the middle who are ambivalent to whole, about a whole lot of things, but won't ever speak up about it. And then you know, to the right of them are you know people who are ambivalent, but um, you know. Uh, really will defend the religious leader and so on and so on, right? Like it's a whole spectrum of belief and practice. And so I expect that the people who are probably more able to question the leadership will be happier with this book than people who will feel that they have to defend the religious leadership. Is there a concept of excommunication in that community? (laughs) Just wondering. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Uh (laughs) You know, I come from a very privileged position in that I don't belong to a jamaat or a congregation. Um, And what that enables me to do is not worry too much about negative reactions. Um, I I belong to um, an activist group called We Speak Out. And within that group, we have people who must do their activism anonymously because our community does practice um, social shunning and, and, you know, people can be harassed for speaking out, but that is not my case. Um, I, my own immediate family is pretty liberal and I have support from them. And so, you know, I'll, I'll be fine. Okay. Well, well, that's good. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the community and how politically, um, what what's going to happen right now with the whole female uh, um, katna mm-hmm. movement? What's happening so, with it? So, as as I mentioned before, the the discourse around the issue really came forward in 2015. So that's just five years ago. So two groups emerged, We Speak Out and a group called Sayo. 
Um, and these two groups started working very hard, mostly volunteer labor, mostly survivor-led, and um, really began educating in the community. Because this is a social norm where people really didn't think that they were doing any harm. So our job became to talk about all of the potential physical, emotional, and sexual harms that this practice can have and does have. So in the last five years, I would say it would be very hard for anyone to say, oh, I just didn't know. I've never heard of anyone complaining about this. So that's been our work. The um, We Speak Out has also been working. Um, there's a case that has gone to the Supreme Court with a number of complainants, and, and We Speak Out is one of them. Um, and the goal is to get the practice banned in India so that it is illegal, so that even if a religious leader mm. insists that it's mandatory, it's going to be illegal. Um, Are there countries in which it is still legal in the West, let's say? It's, it's generally like banned um, in many, many, many countries um, all over the world. Okay. In most countries, I would say it's illegal. Um, but that doesn't mean that there's prosecutions happening or even investigations. And we now understand that it's happening in 92 countries across the world. Oh and as more survivors speak out, um, we are hearing more and more about it. it it's such a, such a taboo subject to speak about. And that's why more people haven't spoken out. But there's a bit of a Me Too movement around FGM that's happening, which is great. So for example, um, you know, we used to think that it only happened in Africa. And then we learned about the Middle East and India and across Asia. And now we're hearing survivors come forward from Russia, from <sighs> Colombia in South America, and in recent years from white Christian women in the US. So it's- Wait, why are they having this happen? Um, it's the same- reason that is happening oh. across the planet so across the planet it's the culture of patriarchy that oh drives all of this right and wow. so um what what is talked about is the need to control sexuality so in my community it's to make girls pure loyal right but that's the same kind of uh, mythology that is spoken about, maybe in slightly different language, but across the world. So one of the activists in the U.S. who is a white Christian woman who came forward is a woman named Renee Bergstrom. And, um, you know, she talks about how um, her mother took her to a doctor because she was afraid of her being too sexualized as a child. So. I think it's something that is just coming out. And a colleague of mine recently told me that until the 70s, FGM was something that was covered by health plans in the U.S. Oh, so, wow. you know, there's there's got to be lots of people, you know, in their, you know, 40s, 50s and 60s who have had this happen to them and they just aren't talking about it. Mm -hmm. So anyone who's listening to this podcast who's interested can just go to wespeakout.org for more information about for more information. Yeah. And, um, there's, there are networks all across the world. If you look up FGM network and whatever country you're in, in Canada, we have the 
and FGM Canada network and the US it's the um, and FGM US network if you just google those you'll find you'll find communities and you'll find activists and people this has been so enlightening so interesting i i really appreciate you talking to me about this and i'm sorry for my ignorance about the subject i was one That's of the people okay. who thought it only happens in africa sorry but That's okay, um, okay. You know- one of the things that I, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a novelist first and an activist second. And, you know, one of the things that has really happened with this book that's been so interesting for me is that it's become this lovely vehicle to not just talk about craft, but to talk about these issues, these very silenced issues. And I'm quite grateful to be able to do that. And um, when I was when I was writing this book, I I first wanted to write like a beautiful book, a beautiful story, you know, a page turner. And I wanted to find a way to fold in these issues so that people would understand and be educated and hopefully help to change the world. It is indeed a beautiful book. Thank you so much. What are you working on now? Well, while I was um, waiting to find a publisher for this book, I started working on a YA novel that's based or inspired by um, this one really weird year when I was 16. So this will be my first experience of writing a YA novel. So it was growth for me and it's nearly ready to be sold. So we'll see if that happens soon. And I also was working on um, a book of poetry that has just found a publisher and should be out in fall 2022. Thank you so much for spending the time with me and best of luck on all your writing and your books and your cause. Thank you so much, Galit. I really appreciate being able to talk to you and and talk to your audience as well. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking with Farzana Doctor, author of the beautiful moving novel, Seven. Hope you are always able to lose yourself in a good book. Happy reading. 